Good morning. It's good to see all of you here on this beautiful spring-like December morning. And, uh, but we're glad that you're here. And even though it may not necessarily feel like it outside, as you can tell by our decor and our music, it is the Christmas season and we are full on in Christmas here around Ivy Creek. And as the uh, concerts that we have been able to be a part of the last couple of nights and, and of course is, is also going on the night, we'll, we'll say we hope that you will come and be a part of that with us and we're excited uh, to be able to, to, uh, to put that uh, on for your enjoyment and also for your, uh, to help us worship uh, the, the, the risen Christ this Christmas. And you may be expecting me to tell you to turn in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, but because it's Christmas... We're actually going to take a little bit of break over the next few weeks. The Lord willing, we're going to, we're going to do things just a little bit differently until after the first of the year. And uh, I'm actually going to, we're going to look at a series of sermons that looks at Christmas from the viewpoint of the Old Testament. And in fact, I have, I have given the series of sermons a name and I've actually entitled it An Old Testament Christmas. Now, for some, that, that may be a little bit confusing uh, the concept of considering Christmas and, and considering Christ from the perspective of the Old Testament may seem a little strange. After all, the Old Testament was written in the time B.C. And, and B.C. means before Christ. And so to think about talking about the birth of Jesus and to talk about his life in a, from, from passages that were written before he was born may just seem a little bit odd. But... But the fact of the matter is, is that when we really begin to understand what the New Testament reveals to us about Christ, we recognize that it's really not that odd at all. In fact, in the book of John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus makes a very key statement. He, he says to those who were around him, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you that before Abraham was, I am. Now, there's a lot that's embedded into that statement, but at the heart of it, Jesus is claiming his deity. He's claiming himself to be the second person of the Trinity. But, but did you notice what he says? Before Abraham was, I am. In other words, Jesus is claiming his pre-existence before even the patriarch Abraham had lived some two, many, many thousands of years before Jesus. In fact, the whole Gospel of John testifies to the fact that Jesus pre-existed even the world. The, the first chapter of John's Gospel begins by talking about the Word, and the Word is a, is a way of describing Jesus. And John says he opens up the Gospel by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and nothing was made that was made apart from Him. So that tells us that, that Jesus Christ existed before time even began, even before the creation of the world. But then just a few verses later in the first chapter of John, John says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what that tells us is, is that though Jesus was the Word that had existed before time began, He also intersected time and space by coming and being born from a woman we know to be Mary in a town of Bethlehem. And what that tells us is, is that Jesus the man came into existence with his conception 
and his birth from Mary's womb, but Christ, the Son of God, had existed eternally as God, as God the Son with the Father long before his birth in Bethlehem. Now, when we get that concept in our minds, then it starts to make sense. Well, we shouldn't be surprised then to find that he's talked about in the Old Testament. It shouldn't be a surprise to us with the fact that he has existed from before time that we could find there, to be, there could be uh, images and, and there would also be symbols as well as direct prophecy with regard to Jesus in the Old Testament that tells us not only about his birth, but tells us why Jesus came. And so the concept of an Old Testament Christmas really shouldn't be all that strange to us at all if we truly understand who Jesus is. And therefore, over the next few weeks, that's what I want us to do. I want us to look at some, some significant Old Testament passages that point us to the birth of Christ, but not just to his birth, but to why he came. And the first one that I want us to look at, I think, is appropriate that we go back to the very first book of the Bible and to what I would consider to be the very first Christmas message and it comes from Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do, please turn with me there to Genesis chapter 3. And as you're making your way to that point, I would just say this to you. As a kid, I used to watch, my dad's here, we used to watch in the afternoons, he'd let me watch westerns with him. We'd watch Gunsmoke, and, and sometimes we'd watch Poncho and Cisco, and some of you may know that one. And we'd also watch The Lone Ranger, that was black and white. And, and the black and white westerns that we used to watch sometimes were always significant because they always kind of started the same way. You had the good guy and you had the bad guy. And the good guy always wore what? That's right, and the bad guy always wore? So there you have the, the good guy, white hat wearing good guy, and the black hat wearing bad guy. And the episodes pretty much always mirrored one another. The good guy, white hat wearing good guy, he would always get himself into some kind of mess. By the middle of the episode, he'd be in a mess. And you didn't think there was any way he's ever going to get out of that mess. He had gotten himself into a bad state of affairs. But the black hat wearing bad guy was looking like he was going to triumph. But what always happened by the end? The white hat wearing good guy would find a way to get out of the mess that he was in. And the black hat wearing bad guy would always come to justice. And everybody smiled and said, what a great episode at the end. That's the way most of those Westerns always worked out. I wish life worked out like that. I wish that it was always that easy. I wish bad guys and their evil motives were always so easily to spot. I wish that none of them ever were victorious. I wish that good always triumphed over evil. The truth is, our experiences in our life tell us that the bad guys don't always wear black hats. It's not always so easy to spot. Not only that, but the evil that they are perpetrating is not always so easy to identify. Sometimes it takes a while before we figure out what's going on. To make matters worse, the bad guys don't always seem to come to justice. Oftentimes, evil people appear to get off scot-free, never being held accountable for their wickedness. That really is much more in line with what reality is the world in which we live that's that's a lot more close to what we see and therefore as entertaining as it might be to sit down and watch a good episode of the Lone Ranger fact of the matter is it's just not that way in real life or is it Genesis chapter 3 introduces us to the original black hat wearing bad guy 
And we are alerted to the original chain of events that created a world in which evil often triumphs over good. And honestly, when we study this passage in Genesis 3, we come away with this question. We have to ask this question, will good win or will bad ultimately triumph? And quite frankly, I believe that is what makes this passage such an important passage for us as believers to be familiar with and to, to converse with in the text. That's why I think it's an important passage at Christmas time. Because here's where I believe, as I've stated, we get the first Christmas message. And so with all of that as an introduction and something to float around in your head as we read this text, let's just read it this morning. And if you're new to Ivy Creek, let me just say this to you. We are people who value God's Word. We believe that it is the power of God, that God, the, the Holy Spirit, has authored it. And so, even though this is a fairly long passage, I've made the decision this morning that we're going to take the time, we're going to read it. Because I think that as believers, we, we benefit by simply hearing the Word of God if we don't do anything else. So I want us to read the entire chapter this morning. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, the woman you gave me. She gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, 
You are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, or out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us and that you open our eyes and our ears to be able to understand it through your Holy Spirit working in it and through it in our lives. So I pray that would be what would happen today. I pray that we would, in the very best that we have the ability to force out all the things that would distract us from being able to just spend some time focusing on what you were communicated to us in your word. Help us to be able to, 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 to narrow our thoughts to these words so that through them you might transform us. You might change us. You might challenge us. That you might conform us into the image of your Son. I pray that that would happen for your glory and for our good. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I provided you this morning in your bulletin with just a very simple outline of this passage. It's just some simple hooks that I think will help us be able to just kind of follow our way through the text. And um, the first one, the first hook that I have given you, the first point on your outline this morning is very simple. It's this. It comes from verse 1, and it is the enemy. The enemy. I, uh, I, I came to the office the other day. I had on one of my hats that I tend to wear. It was kind of a broad-brimmed hat, and I walked into the office, and, and Willene, who's sitting right there, she looked at me. She goes, you look like that guy. That guy in the movies, what's his name? You look like Indiana Jones. I thought, that's pretty good. Because I had on an Indiana Jones hat. It's good that she recognized that. I don't think I look too much like Indiana Jones. i tell you how I am like him, though. 
I don't like snakes. <laughs> Never have. I know that there's some good snakes out there, supposedly, that help kill the poisonous ones, and, and that's all fine and good, but I still don't want to see them. I don't want them near me. I don't want them around me. Therefore, it's not very difficult for me to identify who the hat, black hat-wearing bad guy is in this story because he, he steps or he slithers onto the scene in the very first verse. He's identified as the serpent. And he is the one that I believe Moses, who is the author of Genesis, from my perspective, begins by describing as someone who is very crafty, very cunning. That just makes him even sound sinister in the way that Moses describes him. Now, it's my guess that the children of Israel, who would have been the original recipients of this, Moses' writing, would have understood that the serpent was the, the bad guy too. After all, if you go over and read in Numbers chapter 21, you'll find that, that, that a, a, uh, while wandering in the desert, that there was a plague of fiery serpents that were sent upon the Israelites. People always had to be careful whenever they walked in the desert where they placed their feet because there could always be a serpent behind a rock that would jump out and plant its fangs into their leg or into their foot and inject it with deadly poison. And so for the the children of Israel, Israel, they would have seen the serpent certainly as a, a deadly enemy, but that was infinitely more true of this serpent here in Genesis 3. In fact, what we come to recognize is the serpent here is, is really the rebellious arch enemy of God, and he's also the rebellious arch enemy of humanity who was created in God's image. Later in the book of Revelation, the apostle John would describe him this way. He says he is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So right away, right here in verse 1, we are introduced to public enemy number one, Satan, who presents himself as a serpent. So that's the first thing that we need to note in this story. But that leads us to the next hook, the next point that we ought to recognize as we work our way through this text, and that is, what is his strategy? The strategy. We see this really in the first few verses, verses 1 through 5, because having alerted us to our enemy, now Moses wants us to see how Satan goes about doing his deed of destruction. Notice how crafty he is. You've already been told he's cunning, that he's crafty, but notice just how crafty, how sneaky, how underhanded he is. Verse 1 says, the serpent asks, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now that just, that's just a deceptive way of asking a question, especially when you look back and see exactly what God had said back in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Because there he gives the the, the command to Adam. And what he says, he says, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Do you see how the serpent has taken what God has said and twists it and turns it to make it into something that's negative rather than being something that's positive? His his strategy was to get Adam and his wife to ignore the fact that God had provided them with many, many good gifts, plenty of food to give to them. Yet, in the way that he phrases his question, he makes it seem as if God is unfair, unloving, unreasonable, ungenerous. Satan is cunning. He's crafty. He's sinister. 
But his strategy continues to unfold as we see what he does in verse 4. Because there he openly attacks God, calling him a liar. God had said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And Satan says, ha, you will not surely die. In other words, God's holding out on you. He's not being honest with you. In fact, he's been lying to you because, as we read in verse 5, he's holding out on you. Notice what he says there. God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow. With just a question and a few short statements, Satan, the serpent, the black hat-wearing arch enemy, has employed a strategy on deceiving our first parents. He set out to trick them, to cause them to question his goodness and to make them suspicious of God, make them suspicious that he was holding out. And brothers and sisters, let me just say, his tactics have not changed. He still works the same way with us, causing us to question whether or not God is truly good, whether he truly loves us, and if he truly has our best interests at heart. So that's the enemy, that's the strategy. Now let's look at the tragedy. That's the third hook on your outline this morning. The tragedy is from verses 6 through 13. We see what happens. The temptation is complete, and, and now the serpent slithers off the scene, and we're left to see how this couple is going to deal with the temptation. The temptation that has been set for them in verse 5 to be like God. And the pace of this action slows way down. In verse 6, I want you to notice that the woman, we get an insight into what she's contemplating. She's thinking through things. She's looking at the tree. She's looking at the fruit. She's thinking about what Satan had just said to her. And now she's contemplating what's going to happen. She is mesmerized by what 1 John 2 verse 16 says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Notice what happens in verse 6. The woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it was a tree desirable to make one wise. And so having been deceived by Satan, we read that she then took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, let me be clear. What is evident is that Adam should have stopped his wife. Adam should have said, stop it. Get away from that tree. He should have said, don't do that. God commanded us not to eat of that tree and he has honored us by creating us in his image. Therefore, we are his creatures and we must not take pride in ourselves and attempt to try to become like him. We must not disobey him and take for granted the goodness that he has shown to us. That's what Adam should have said. But instead, he doesn't say anything. Instead, he stands idly by allowing his wife to transgress God's commandments. And then at her bidding, he willingly disobeyed God himself. And together, they made the decision to no longer trust in God's goodness. And the outcome, well, the outcome was that sin had now entered God's perfect paradise. And the results don't take long to show up either. Notice verse 7, we read that their eyes were open. They knew they were naked. In other words, they had lost their innocence and now they were covered with shame. They were covered with regret. And as a result, they hide from each other. 
They hide from God. God comes onto the scene walking in the cool of the evening in the garden. And he calls out to Adam, Adam, where are you? This is not normal for us not to have this kind of companionship. Where are you, Adam? And the whole time Adam is hid from God. He's hidden himself from Eve. He's hidden himself from God. And finally he calls out and he says, I'm here, but I've hidden from you. I'm hidden from you because I'm afraid. I'm afraid because I'm naked. You see, in his disobedience of God's command, we immediately recognize that the relationship and the communion and the worship that Adam had enjoyed with the Lord God was now gone. He's been replaced by shame, replaced by guilt. Spiritually speaking, what we are witnessing right here is Adam's death. This is exactly what God said would happen. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And here the relationship and the ability to worship God is gone, replaced with shame and guilt. And brothers and sisters, that is the definition of spiritual death. Verses 11 through 13, the Lord God continues with his questions. And what we find is that Adam blames his wife. His wife blames the serpent. And what we see take place is that neither one of them want to accept responsibility for what they had done. And we recognize that the bliss of paradise is spiraling out of control. Something along the lines of a cataclysmic earthquake that not only shakes the foundation of the earth, but it rips and it separates Adam and his wife from the beauty of the relationship that they had enjoyed with the Lord God, their creator. So that's the tragedy. Now let's look at the next hook in our study of this text, and that is the fourth point on your outline. It's the penalty. The penalty. Verses 14 through 24 alert us to it. Notice that the Lord God wastes no time delivering the verdict. He, he begins by cursing the serpent in verses 14 and 15. In verse 16, though he does not curse the woman, he does punish her. He, he punishes her in her role as mother and his wife, telling her that she will experience pain in childbirth and anguish in the struggle for dominance in marriage. Then in verses 17 through 19, we see that the Lord God punishes Adam. He punishes him in his role as provider and as head of the human race. And it is in Adam's punishment that we recognize that that's why instead of living in a world which is paradise and there's plenty of food, instead... Adam and his offspring are told by God that they will now live in an earth that God has cursed. The earth will produce thorns and thistles. And what that means is that the natural thing that we have to do in order to provide for ourselves is now considered toil. It's laborious. It's difficult. It's struggle. God says then, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And then comes the ultimate punishment. God says that all of that will continue until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. You remember how Adam was created? God took the very dust of the ground and he formed it into a man and breathed into him the breath of life. And now God is saying, because of what you have done, you came from the dust, and you will go back to the dust. This concept is exactly what the Apostle Paul picks up on in his writing of the book of Romans when he says, the wages 
of sin is death. And just when you think things can't get any worse, they do. The final verses of this chapter, we read that the Lord God drove both Adam and Eve out of Eden. He banished them from the garden and from access to the tree of life. He banished them from paradise and he banished them from the presence of God. And so for our first parents, the penalty was clear. There would be pain. There would be struggle. There would be toil. There would be exile. There would be forfeiture. There would be alienation. And yes, there would be death. And to make sure that there was no way back, we read in verse 24 that the Lord God placed cherubim to guard the entrance to the garden as well as a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Game over. Turn out the lights. The death blow has been dealt. Satan was successful. The bad guy has won. Evil has triumphed. That is the context. That is the ugly backdrop for this first Christmas message. You see, before we get to the message of Christmas that's embedded in this text, we have to recognize that it comes in the face of a tragic story. It comes in the face of paradise lost. It comes in the face of all hope being eradicated. Or is it? That leads to the fifth hook. And really the whole point of studying this passage gets us back to verse 15. And the fifth and final point on your outline this morning simply is this. It's the hope. It's the hope that's embedded in what God says. Let me read verse 15 for you once more. The Lord God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse has been dubbed the Proto-Evangelicum. Now, I graduated from North Hall, right up here in Hall County. I'm going to put this in North Hall language. That's the first preaching of the good news. This is the first preaching of the gospel that we find in the Bible. And obviously, in light of the tragic story that we have just seen take place in chapter 3, we need some good news right about now. This is where some good news would be helpful. But I want you to know that the good news comes in a very unusual way. God, he couches the announcement of the good news in the fact that there will be an ongoing and perpetual battle that will be fought between the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman. But he says that this battle will will ultimately be won by the woman's seed. Now, That even in and of itself is a little unusual because in most cases when we think of seed and the seed of of something as it pertains to someone who is conceiving birth, we think of that coming from a male. We think of it being the man who provides the seed. But here, here God says that there would be one born whose conception would be different from any other. And that uniqueness actually points us to the fact that the seed of the woman would ultimately be God's only begotten Son. And that is why this first Christmas message, that is why it is here, and it's why it predicts for us the birth of Christ, who was the Holy Spirit-conceived, virgin-born Messiah. 
Now, what's interesting is a little later in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we get another prophecy with regard to this unique, uniquely born Messiah. There in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we find this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign, and behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, you shall call, and he shall call his name Emmanuel. Later in the Gospel of Luke, the very first chapter, in case we're confused as to exactly who these passages are, are referring to, we find in Luke chapter 1 that the angel of the Lord comes to Mary and he tells Mary, you will have a child. And she protests and says, wait a minute, how can that be, being that I am a virgin? And then the angel of the Lord said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of God or the highest will overshadow you and therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You see what all of that tells us? Is that Jesus, who was born to Mary in Bethlehem a little over 2,000 years ago, His birth was predicted all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3. That He would be the unique seed of the woman and that He would be the one born of a virgin. So that's really the first thing that we recognize about Genesis 3.15. It is the first Christmas birth announcement. Many of you probably get those in the mail now when friends or, or loved ones have a child. They send out birth announcements to, to announce to all their friends and family that, that one has been born into our family. We want you to celebrate with us. This is the first birth announcement, Genesis 3.15. But I want you to know it's more than that. It not only tells us that one is going to be born, it tells us why he was being born. And so we also have here an announcement of defeat. Back in verse 14 of Genesis 3, we read that God placed a curse on the serpent and he told him, he says, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, here's what I'm going to say. There's nothing in the Bible says this except for this verse, but I'm going to tell you, that's why snakes crawl on their belly. It's to remind us that one day Satan is going to bite the dust. Their slithering on the ground reminds us of the curse that God placed on the serpent right here. And it was a foreshadowing of the fact that one day it would happen that Satan would be completely and utterly defeated. It's there as a reminder. But how is Satan going to be defeated? Well, I want you to notice that though God says that the heel of the woman's seed will be bruised by the serpent... He says that the serpent's head will be bruised by her seed. Now, if you've got an, an NIV translation this morning, I actually love the way that the NIV translates Genesis 3.15 because there God is talking to Satan and to the serpent. and He says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Ray Pritchard kind of describes the difference between having a crushed head and a struck heel. He says, heal wounds are painful, but they don't kill you. However, no one survives a crushed head. The cross, he says, was God's death blow against Satan. It was the payback for the fall and more besides. And when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he utterly defeated Satan. So in this first Christmas message, we understand that Jesus Christ was uniquely and specially born for the purpose of crushing Satan's head. And as one has written from this verse, what you get is the picture of the, of the victor just taking his foot and crushing the head of the one he has defeated into the ground. And friends, that's exactly what happened on the cross 
when Jesus died in my place and in your place, and when he satisfied God's demand against sin, he crushed Satan's power against us when he rose from the dead, proving that he was the one who was victorious. Consider what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 3, verse 8. I would suggest to you that this is the entire Christmas message summed up in one small verse. It says this, for, the purpose, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or born. Why? That he might destroy the works of the devil. Consider also what the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That one's a little longer, but I even like it a little better because you want to know why? It tells us not only that Jesus was born, it tells us why he was born to crush and defeat Satan, but then it includes us because you want to know who we are? We're the ones who have for all of our lifetime been subject to bondage because of our sin. Because our first parents also were subject to a lifetime of bondage to sin. How does that happen? Well, back in Genesis 3, verse 21, we get a little idea of how God is going to take care of that. In verse 21 of our text, we see that God did not abandon our first parents. Even after they had sinned and disobeyed, even after he had banished them from the garden, it says here that the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed Adam and Eve so that they would be equipped to face the hostile environment that was going to face them outside the garden. But what that tells us is that God, even in their sin, didn't abandon them. Rather, He provided for them a temporary clothing to protect them that came as the result of the death of an animal. And I want you to know that temporary covering only pointed to a more permanent covering that would one day come when Jesus Christ was stretched out on a cross and died for our sins and through that the righteousness that had been his from all eternity is now given to us who believe in him. We are now clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That is the hope and the message of the good news. So all the way back here in Genesis chapter 3, we have this first Christmas message which which tells us that there's the first announcement of the birth of Christ, of the Messiah, but we also find the message of the defeat of our arch enemy, that black hat wearing Satan who deceives us, the devil, the slithering serpent. In that we find the hope, the hope of the message of Christmas, that we who suffer the same penalty of sin and for our sin and disobedience that our first parents suffered from, may be redeemed, that we may be reconciled, that we may be restored to fellowship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us through the cross and the empty tomb. And that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is this. The very first Christmas message announces the good news that the virgin-born Christ came to defeat Satan and to set us free from the penalty of our sin through his death and resurrection.
Friends, that's why Christmas is so important. That's why we celebrate it as believers. We celebrate Christmas because we know that in an out-of-the-way stable, in the out-of-the-way little town of Bethlehem, over 2,000 years ago, there was a baby who was born. But that baby was unique. He was special. He was the one and only Son of God born to a virgin. He was the seed of the woman who was born to crush the head of the serpent, of Satan, of the devil, of the deceiver of mankind. And he did so not simply by being born, but by ultimately dying on a cross in our place, satisfying God's wrath against our sin, making a way for you and I to be forgiven of our sin and then by rising again from the dead in order to bring us eternal life. And what his offer of grace and mercy demands from you and from me is repentance and faith. We must acknowledge his sovereignty in our lives. We must turn from our rebellion and our sin and we must place our faith in him as the only means of salvation because brothers and sisters, friends who are here this morning, apart from faith and repentance, the Bible says that you and I will forever be lost in our sin. Con condemned to remain in our shame and in our nakedness. Condemned to, for to forever suffer the pain and the struggle and the toil and the exile and the forfeiture and the alienation and the everlasting death that results from sin and disobedience. But Christmas, Christmas points us to hope. The hope that we have in Christ. And so we come back to that question Will evil always win? Will the bad guys always come out on top as it seems to happen in our world? And I would say to you the answer to that question is no, 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 a thousand times no. Satan has been defeated. Death has been destroyed. Sin has been overcome. And Jesus Christ is victorious. That, my friend, is the ultimate message of Christmas, and that is why Jesus truly is the reason for the season. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.